0: please be aware that this is a recording of a writing festival. As such, there are some adult concepts, probably a bit of swearing, and sometimes there might even be some triggering elements. So do be aware of that. If anything does make you feel uncomfortable, please stop listening at any point. Also, we do recommend you pop on some headphones. That way, the only person who can get offended is you. welcome back to the Rights for Festivals podcast where we're getting all lit up with the Wollongong Writers Festival. If you'd like to know more about Wollongong Writers Festival, go to www.wollongongwritersfestival.com or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook. This session is Gendered Violence, Media and the Law with Gala Vanting, Clementine Ford and Jess Hill.
1: So before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we are meeting on today, the Wadi Wadi people of the, I don't have my notes in front of me, and I'm not from, thank you, the Darwall Nation. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So, we're going to talk about sex, gender, gendered violence, media, and law.
2: Um, also, just would like to say that it's no mean feat to step in and host a panel 30 minutes before the panel starts. So,
1: can we have a big round of applause, please, for Gala? So, I mean, so the proposition basically is, you know, how do we move from, um, how do we move from really theoretical conversations about gendered violence to ...some actual results, you know. Uh, So some change in the way that we legislate around it... ...some change in the way that we um, resource the solutions to it. I mean, I think that
2: one of the the issues... ...that I've kind of constantly come up against in my work is... ...it is slowly changing and I think we can see that... ...you know, that's incredibly encouraging... ...the way that the public is becoming more literate... ...when it comes to these um, issues and more invested, I think, in seeking solutions. But we're still facing a huge backlash against even the discussion of it, you know. that I'm sure that Jess will have numerous examples to share of opposition that she's faced, you know, since her book, her excellent book, See What You Made Me Do, came out. Um, Because there's still this sort of... Any time you mention the reality of men's violence against women in this country you're met with that kind of wall of opposition that, you know, well, what about men? Men suffer too. Why are we talking about women all the time? And it's like, it's true. Men do suffer at the hands of violence. Men are mostly victimised by other men and mostly, you know, not in domestic settings. Um, Curiously, I've, in my experience, have found that, that when men want to turn the conversation or when these sort of Troubleso- troublesome men want to turn the conversation away from, you know, the impact on women to the, the violence that they experience. They never want to have that conversation. They never want to talk about how men are beating each other on the street. Or um, here's Jess, yay, Jess! Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: totally Jess Hill, everyone. Yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs>
2: we were just talking about, or we started by talking about the um, how encouraging it is that more and more people are invested in having conversations about men's violence against women, but, but yet there's still this backlash that occurs. There's still this wall of opposition. And my experience has been that the, the men who meet you with that opposition want to view violence against men as an equal and opposite kind of exchange. So if, if they can say, well, men are victimised by domestic abuse too... Then the assumption is that all of the people who are doing the victimising are women, like it's an equal and opposite exchange, which is not true.
3: Yeah, uh, that's, it's funny with that. I think that sometimes there's guys who, so there's guys who legitimately have been in awful relationships who then feel like they're thoroughly unrepresented in the conversation about domestic abuse. And I would say that's not an unfair feeling, that they, they probably are, because they're, they're often footnoted. Um, and the reason that they are footnoted, I guess, in these conversations is because we're, we're dealing with a phenomenon that at its pointiest end, you know, kills one woman a week, right? So homicide is the pointy end of this. Um, and, and then at the other pointy end where there's not murder but what often can lead to murder is what's known as coercive control, which is a kind of abuse that centres around power and domination and really the eradication of self and the majority of victims of coercive control in heterosexual relationships are female. In same-sex relationships, it can be um, either male or female. So at the both ends, that the worst kind of domestic abuse, be it in physical harm or in psychological harm, is being perpetrated against women by men or, you know, vice versa in the same-sex relationships. But, and this is what's really interesting, is if you look at the other kind of domestic abuse, which is much more reactive and sort of overreactive or where there's violence due to substance abuse or whatever's going on in the relationship where it's volatile, um, we do see a lot of female perpetrators showing up in those statistics and actually some statistics will show 50-50 in those incident-based sort of um, statistics. But so that's where they will they will say they have legitimate argument to say that it's 50-50 men's, women's. And it's, I went into a like whole chapter breakdown on why pe- everyone thinks they have legitimate data that paints a completely opposite picture. <laughs> um, so I think that what I tried to do in the book was to do a whole chapter on when women use violence, both as perpetrators and resistance violence in relationships, to just say, like, okay, guys, you're not just a footnote, but let's talk about what it is to experience this as a man Let's talk about what the basic differences are between men's and women's experiences of um, of being abused. And the key one is that men by and large, are not killed by their perpetrators almost never.
2: And they don't report feeling afraid that they'll be killed. Either. precisely
3: because they they have no reason to be <laughs> and yeah. there's no evidence that that's a that that's a problem. So that's why shelters exist, right? because it was like, women needed somewhere to take their children because they were afraid of being killed primarily and even some shelters were so overburdened that they they had to leave it only they had to sort of restrict it only to people who feel like they're they're in you know danger of losing their lives um so but interestingly i think the, the where men and women have similar experiences is that they are both afraid of what will happen to their children mm-hmm. if they leave the relationship so men who are with a really unregulated unreg- woman or a woman who is a dangerous parent, they are also afraid that if they leave and if the family court becomes involved that they will lose any ability to protect those children. So,
1: yeah. which, is, which is a legitimate fear when the family law system gets it wrong so often or, or, or kind of goes through another process of, of trauma for that family trauma or separation or whatever.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah,
1: exactly, yeah.
2: But but then on the flip side, there are also, I mean, the father's rights activists
1: who's... Like Pauline Hanson somehow. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. I I thought that... Legitimately, yeah.
2: The precursor to your book was the amazing piece, which I always return to, that you wrote for The Monthly a few years ago, Suffer the Children, Mm. um, about the experience of women and children in the family court system. And you even said at the start that when you started writing that piece that you expected to come down on the side of... Fathers being, you know, sort of ritually disenfranchised in the family court. But realising not only was that not true, but also the stories that are out there are so horrific. Yeah. In terms of just how much it's, you know, mothers can be traumatised by that system.
3: Yeah. And I think, so there's definitely where a lot of us think that the system is uh, biased against fathers or biased against men, it's a shit system for everyone to go through. Everybody has a bad time in the family law system, not only because getting divorced is a fucked up thing to go through um, and um, and everything that goes along with that, but because the family law system is – it can feel punitive. The judges are unfortunately often really harsh. You know, it's not a nice place to be. So everyone's going to have an awful time. So I can understand. Okay, so there's guys that go through the system and they feel like they're getting a really hard done by. Everyone feels like that pretty much. It's very rare not to – what I was sort of amazed by was that it, it, there was a gendered bias and I'm sorry but it really does usually fall down against women but particularly women who allege abuse or who carry on the allegations of abuse from their children. I've also seen some guys who've done that but like a minority. It, basically what you're looking at is a bias against protective parents and a protective parents who say that their children are not safe with the other parent and the reason that is is because over the last 20-25 years the court has by legislation but also by culture moved towards a pro-contact ideology and so if there's a parent trying to get in the way of contact with the other parent they are they are demonized pathologized they are basically an inconvenience for the court even though the court is by default basically a family violence court. About seventy to eighty percent of the cases that come to family court include allegations of emotional, or physical, or sexual abuse. So, and yet, even with that statistic, and actually, just in that cohort, eighty-three percent of those cases that involve allegations end up in shared parenting.
2: And could you also not assume that actually the, s- the statistical reality of where violence is present is higher than that, because there would there are some women who are advised not to bring up allegations of abuse because they'll be deemed an unfriendly parent.
3: Yeah, I had a legal aid lawyer who is totally feminist, on board with the whole project, organising DV events for the next um, 16 days of gender-based activism. And she was saying to me on the phone how she had to say to her client that you really shouldn't bring up these allegations because it is going to work against you in the court. And that's despite all the legislation that's been changed to say you've got to make sure that you declare that right up front. All the legislation doesn't change culture. Mm. And the culture is still very firmly anti-protective parents. And it's just like the stories that, like I just heard in, in the last month, I've heard of three women who ha- whose children have made allegations where one in which child protection had said there is a substantial risk of psychological harm to both children, and those children were taken away from that mother. They were also taken away from the two other mothers where allegations had been um, suggested uh, made by the children. That mother who had child protection intervene, she stopped from seeing her children for four months, not even any contact. Like, it's some weird social engineering whereby if you take the children away from the mother who's being protective or that's, you know, from her point of view she's being protective, um, that somehow you will reunify the children with the parent they're terrified of and everything will be sorted out.
2: But they think it's the mothers, like, manipulating the children and and putting them up to saying things. Like I I read recently... um And I sort of had known this statistic but it was still a shock to reread it that one in six, only one in six reports made to police of um, sexual assault against women over the age of 15 will result in prosecution, not even even conviction but prosecution. And that figures one in seven for children who report sexual Mm -hmm. assault. So we sort of live in this system that says, well, we will not tolerate violence against women, we will not tolerate violence against children and yet at every turn you see that that's not true. And I can understand, um, you know, this must have been something that was hugely frustrating for you writing the book, Jess, and, and, you know, meeting these women and and hearing these terrible stories, that, you know, in, in a society where people still misunderstand the reality of men's violence against women and they, you know, still come out with nonsense like, well, why doesn't she just leave him? Not not even knowing, of course, the violence that she faces if she does that. But I can understand facing the family court system and the very real risk that you might either have to – you might lose your children or that you might have to consent to having your children going and staying with a man who is abusive towards them, whether or not that's physically or sexually or emotionally. I can understand why some women would say – well, I'm going to stay in this horrifically violent situation because at least then I'm here. Yeah, as when a the supervisor. supervisor. Yeah.
3: And that's yeah. the thing, like, you know, that's um, this barrister I spoke to who's now, now a magistrate um, in Melbourne and she stayed in her relationship for 10 years after she first wanted to leave and after she first saw her son get physically hit by um, the father who was also abusing her um, because she knew what the family law system was like And she knew she couldn't 100% guarantee that she'd be able to protect her son. And so the better that she could stay in the relationship and at least be a full-time supervisor, and that's what she did for a decade until he was old enough where the courts would allow him to choose who to live with. I just can't tell you how many parents, you know, another parent who actually had to explain to her daughter who was begging her to leave their father, saying, mum, mum, we've got to get away, he's going to kill you, and she had to explain to her daughter about the family law system and she says the moment that her daughter understood the trap that they were all in, she said, the look on her face, I will never, ever forget it. Mm. And that's the thing is it's like the system, I've just been trying to tell like police, bloody politicians, everything like what would you do? Like if that was your sister and she was in a relationship with someone who was threatening to kill her and the children but there was no evidence so never been any police reports, no physical evidence of abuse. That guy's a pretty upstanding guy. Maybe he's got a government job. Would you, knowing what the family law system is like, would you say that she should leave? And no one can ever give me an answer. <laughs>
2: no, they'd say I'd bloody kill him.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then they'd be taken off the ABC. No,
2: oh um, <laughs> no, not if they're not if they're a man. No, no, they're that's not allowed right. to say that they'll that they'll enact revenge.
3: or not? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, true. Would, do, would you say, based on your, uh, you know, all the work that you've done in this area, that the system is, you know, I I remember reading elements of the Family Law Act when I was going through my own process around, um, around divorce. And I r- remember seeing, you know, the best interests of the child over and over and over again. That's what's in the legislation. But what I'm hearing from you is that it, it, it more than often becomes about how to punish the guilty party and, and that the best interests of the child is really kind of an outlier to that process. Is that, a, is that an accurate yeah,
3: well, yeah, that's what the last two inquiries found before this sham inquiry with Pauline Hansen was raised. You know, the Law Reform Commission and the parliamentary inquiry into uh, into the family law courts, they both found that children's rights were not being centred and that so they recommended huge changes, one that we shouldn't just assume that shared parenting is the right thing for all families um, or that we shouldn't have that as a presumption. Um, they wanted to centre children's rights and they made lots of recommendations that would re-centre those and nobody has acted on that. And that's because it de-centres the rights of parents but particularly angry fathers who will, you know, keep that family in the family law courts for years and years. I have people who've gone through these cases for 10 years plus. The whole life of their child has been in the family law courts going back and forth.
2: Well, there's also something really, for me, one of the infuriating parts of it is even, like, taking away the kind of the horrible end game of father's rights in the family court. Um, just as someone who's witnessed a lot of my friends separate from partnerships after they've had children, because, of course, the moment that you introduce a child to a relationship is where you figure out exactly how gender equal it is, mm. um, to a heterosexual relationship, I should say, although I think that that problem still exists in, in you know, same-sex partnerships. Um, men suddenly become very interested in 50-50 care Mm. the moment the woman leaves. You know, prior to that, the family happens around them. And I don't think that they realise exactly... You know, it's that whole thing as well that if if women leave, and I'm talking about non-violent relationships here, but if women leave, their workload goes down, provided they have some sort of... some kind of shared parenting, their workload goes down and men's workload goes up. And almost without fail the women I know who've gone through that have shared that their ex-partners are extremely distressed by this Mm. you know and and many of them repartner really quickly and Mm. all of a sudden then there's another woman in their home to do the job for them um I remember reading uh Michael Kimmel's Angry White Men for my book Boys Will Be Boys because I've got a chapter on that that quotes your Suffer the Children article of course your amazing book hadn't come out by that stage (laughs) um but it's sort of looking at how, you know, men's rights activists use this argument that the courts are against them, whether or not it's it's in the family court or whether or not it's in sexual assault legislation, that women are just making... You know, women just willy-nilly make rape allegations all the time because, of course, like, we get so much money for it for a start. And, and it's so pleasant for us to defend yep. them. Yeah, and super get super famous from it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in really positive ways. Lots of job <laughs> offers. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it was really interesting... And depressing exploring some of the key kind of – this is um, American-based mainly, but some of the key figures in the men's rights movements that have really, like, used these ideas to capitalise – on their own reputations, their own kind of like standing within MRA communities. Like Paul Elam, who's the founder of A Voice for Men, mm-hmm. who I think you're tangling with at the moment. Oh I'm um, no, no, I'm not, no. Oh, God, <laughs> God forbid. You are on Twitter, have haven't I, I thought that I thought that I'd seen something of them, you uh-huh. know, attacking. Maybe they, me if they do, do have an Australian <laughs> chapter. <laughs> um Paul Elam, one of his big things is father's rights, you know, and he sort of corrals all of these men into his movement, you know, mm-hmm. radicalizes them with this with this sort of promise that that he and his army of men are going to go and overturn the oppression of fathers but buzzfeed a few years ago did this amazing expose on him he's a deadbeat dad classic deadbeat dad so his partner left him and then he chose to just pay her a lump sum of two thousand dollars and then just walk away from all parental responsibility um his adult his daughter when she became an adult reached out to him because she wanted to re-establish a relationship with her father and for a few months it was going quite well and then she said that he became increasingly more and more aggressive and the moment that she cut the relationship off again was when she saw him hit her child yeah. um but he's one of the like the key figures that father's rights activists kind of hold up and, and then another man that michael kimmel wrote about um sort of it's sadly ironic really but you know, he's very heavily involved in father's rights and Michael Kimmel interviewed... At, at one point he had a visitation with his son, I think, and Michael Kimmel asked his son a few questions and he said, do you get to see your dad a lot? Do you get to spend a lot of time with him? And this little kid said, oh, no, he's pretty he's pretty busy with his activism stuff, which is... It's terrible, you know? It's terrible that this child doesn't have a loving, like, mutually enjoyable, respectful relationship with his father, but this is this is what... This is one of the facets that we're up against, you know. Yeah. And that's the manipulation of facts. Well, that's – and also remembering that, like, a lot of
3: these guys truly do believe that they're victims. Um, I mean, one of the things – so if you look at – looking at men who use violence in relationships, there's lot there's lots of different things that can differentiate them and their motivations and their um, pathologies or lack of pathology. Um, and But two things that really sort of – I guess, unite most guys, abusive guys, is that they uh, have radical um, victim complexes and almost pathological senses of entitlement. And, you know, the thing is, so often you'll see guys who 100% believe that they are the victim, 100% men's line, who does, they, they get the police charge sheets. And they get phone numbers attached to them and they make calls out to men who have been charged with violent incidents. And they say that like about 90% of those guys will start the phone call absolutely claiming to be the victim, right? And that's because they feel like they're doing it in response to being provoked or being humiliated or being disrespected or whatever it is. They are just responding. So say, for example, like the guy that puts... So there's two kinds, if you can... There are more than two kinds, but there's two sort of patterns that show up in perpetrators of domestic abuse. One is sort of the much more controlling um, well, controlling but instrumental and manipulative offender who goes into each and every relationship with sort of the same modus operandi. Does it – they do it for control. They're not actually there for intimacy at all. Um, they just want someone to control who they can be close with and, and who they can get certain privileges from. Um but then the other guy or the other pattern that you see quite often is more the paranoid codependent type of guy who really is desperately afraid that this woman will leave him and is actually very attached to this woman, puts a lot of stock in the future of what's going to be with this relationship. It's part of why they start off with this idealised version of what their love is going to be and this whole love bombing process that starts off in the beginning because they actually believe it's going to be everything that they've ever wanted and then reality comes crashing in, i.e. she actually has some needs um, that's not just about serving him um, and and he's not centred 100% of the time and I'm generalising here but basically these are the two sorts of patterns we see. So you have the, guy, the first guy who's really a minority and you're dealing with like some of the much more hardcore end of perpetrators who are like reasonably shameless if you're looking at like sociopaths or psychopaths that sort of pathology and they're really like they they'll put a GPS tracker in a woman's car because they're like that's what they do they maintain control they control the perimeter that's what they do they need to be in control at all times the second guy will do the same thing but he's doing it in his mind because he's like I don't know where she's going. She's talking with all these other men. I need to protect her from these other men. A hundred different reasons, but it's in response to what she's doing. It's but they're doing. They're both doing the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. So that that sense of entitlement. My feelings are more important than my partner's or my children's. My my. If I am an undiscovered hero. Is a classic sort of trope in these in these guys. This feeling of entitlement that's been thwarted. Um, leading often to a sense of total humiliation and then seeing that they're being disrespected everywhere. Um, And then that sense that I am being victimised at every step by her, by the system, because what they expect is so completely unrealistic. Um, And so when you see, like, the father's rights groups who unquestioningly just accept whoever comes to their movement without asking or looking into what they've done or not done, they don't care, Um, you know, it is the perfect vessel for that victimhood and that entitlement and that humiliated fury Um,
1: so and 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 there's there's such a dangerous cocktail in there of all of those you know entitlement and shame uh, and and surveillance Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your uh, what you've written about shame and how it moves towards violence you know how how what a dangerous uh, emotion that can be for a man who's in that position
3: yeah so I guess that's the thing is we all have different responses to shame. Sometimes we can have like a variety of responses within five or ten minutes, you know. Um, but the classic sort of like I guess four basic responses to shame, if I can remember them off the top of my head, is um, is one to like withdraw, is to just want to be swallowed up into the ground and maybe just sort of leave the room or even more extreme things just like go off into isolation entirely and not want to see anyone ever. Um, and then there's avoidance and avoidance really is – It's a classic, at most extreme point, the landscape of the narcissist. So it's like I'm going to avoid ever feeling shame, so I'm going to create a profile of grandiosity that I sit behind and over time the me that is behind that is going to get sort of excavated out till there's almost nothing left. And what a lot of women will say who are with narcissistic types of people in their relationships is they get to a certain point in the relationship and they're like, there's no one behind there. It's like there's no one there. And sometimes when they're looking at them and they're in a rage or they're being in that narcissistic rage where it's like I've been exposed, it's like looking into the abyss. Like it's just like what's going on? So that person has almost like sort of excavated themselves entirely and just built a profile. Think Donald Trump is the most extreme version of that, you know. Um, And the third one I can't recall right now but the fourth one, which is the one that we're concerned with, is to attack others. Oh, that's right, to attack self. The third one is to attack yourself and that might be anything from cutting to self-harming or it might be to self-deprecate just in the moment to sort of write yourself off before someone else gets the chance. The attack others script, that when people have that as a response to shame, that's obviously the most dangerous kind of thing because, like, we are all going to be shamed at various parts of our lives, some more than others. But if someone is going, in their response to shame, they choose to attack others to reassert pride and power... They are very dangerous people um, because they are, A, they're going to experience shame quite a lot, but B, if you're someone who has maybe been shamed as a kid or you've grown up feeling quite shamed or worthless, all the rest of it, you're probably going to see shame where shame wasn't even intended, you know, and you'll pick up shame in like or disrespect in like, oh, she went to see her mother four months ago and I said she couldn't and then she never apologised so i am validated in attacking her for that you know that's that's the sort of that's the landscape of shame
1: yeah. and and does i guess um i wonder how that how it, are there any processes for actually interrupting that? There are. There is one case study in your book where, uh, um, at the very end, where, uh, which is kind of more of a community justice process. Mm. Um, but I, I feel like there, are there any other like psychological or other types of interventions that, that you have found can actually interrupt that?
3: Um, yeah, there was one in the book that was, um, it's a narrative therapy process even in the men's behaviour change group, so not just one-on-one but this um, um, Aboriginal feminist, as she describes herself, Ka- Kylie Dowes, she would actually, she'd sort of get all the men in the room and then she'd say like, okay, and this was a bit of a trial, but she, it was an experiment that just sort of came off the cuff um, where she was like, okay, um, what does shame look like? And she expected the men to say shame looks like, you know, a hectoring wife or it looks like, you know, um, a cold mother. And they all said shame looks like a man. Shame looks like a man that you're never good enough for and all this sort of thing. So she was like, okay, well, let's put shame – I'm going to cut the story short. Basically, let's skip a couple of steps. They put shame in a support group in the broom closet on the way into group. <laughs> so they were like, in the, you know, when everyone comes to group, drop your shame off in the support group and then come to the meeting without shame. And what they started sort of – once they'd sort of established that and the, and the men sort of started playing with that – And they'd start calling each other out when they'd hear each other sort of talking with shame on board. And they'd say, oh, did you not drop your shame off? Um, And over time, they started to be able to connect much more with what they'd done, the harm they'd caused, partly because they didn't feel like they would be irredeemable. Like a lot of men, so some men will deny because they're just assholes and minimise because they're assholes. A lot of men are sort of denying what they've done because they feel like to say it out loud, they will be exiled from community, from family, from friends. They cannot be forgiven type of thing. So in this it was sort of like let's talk without shame and what ended up happening with one man in the group who was like they'd been in and out of prison, really serious assaults. He was ready to go back to court to plead not guilty for another assault on his wife and then and and so he got asked this question about that next process and he said, oh, he started saying, well, if it hadn't been for her and... And he just stopped himself and he went, hang on, that's my shame talking. I'm just going to start again. And he said, actually, it's never been about her. It's never been her fault. I'm the one who does it. And that night he went home, went up to his partner and said, can I make you a cup of tea? Which to her was like, what? Um, (laughs) And um, sat her down and said, I feel like it might be the right thing for me to move out for a while, but only if that feels right for you. Um, and he said, the other thing is tomorrow when we go to court, I'm going to plead guilty because you shouldn't have to go through this again through the shame of having to worry if your children will be taken off you and having me deny what happened to you. So he went to court, pled guilty, went to prison and he wrote to the group from prison and I, when Kylie was telling me this, I'm expecting all the guys to just be like, oh, yeah, good one. Like that was a good idea, wasn't it? Um, but actually the first thing they said was, is she Okay. She just said it was remarkable, the turnaround. I'm not saying all these guys just stop their violence like magic, but it's just getting connected back to who they are and where they are, where their humanity sits that's not covered over by a whole load of bullshit. Um, so that's the most amazing intervention I've seen on that level. But have
2: you seen similar things like that, Clem? Oh, not to that extent because I haven't done anywhere near the same amount of work that you've done in that particular field. Um but I have seen, to a lesser degree, um, not with extremely violent men, but I've seen men come to realizations about themselves and about the kinds of men that they that they recognize that they are and that the kinds of men that they want to be. Um, and in fact, uh, I, I just I hosted the first of the, this event that I'm starting. I hosted the first of it on a Thursday night, and it's called Conversations of Men, and it's basically a space where I've invited five men from very diverse backgrounds, to stand on stage. Um, and the, the format that we did it on Thursday night was that I had a, a picture of themselves as little boys projected behind them and I wanted them to read a letter to the little boys that they were about the men that they'd learned to become. And, I mean, none of them were violent offenders or anything like that, but they'd all learned masculinity in certain ways. And I think it was really confronting and powerful for them. They said afterwards that, they, you know, they'd gone away and they'd written these pieces and they talked to their younger selves about shame and bullying that they'd experienced or, you know, a sense of like growing into their manhood or um, certain barriers that they may have faced. But I don't think that even they realised how powerful it would be for them to, to speak to themselves as boys. And afterwards this guy um, tweeted about it and he said that, you know, he was like, oh, I'm so glad I took a hanky because I cried so many tears and it's given me so much to think about. And then the next morning he tweeted again and he said, I'm still thinking about this from last night. Um, I'm sort of paraphrasing here. He said, I'm still thinking about this from last night. It, it's shown me the kind of man that I want to be and the journey that I have to go on to get there. And I'm not there yet but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my way there. And I thought that that was – I'm not sort of saying like I did this amazing thing and I'm responsible for that because I wasn't. Like I just provided a venue, you know. I just got five men on stage but gave them permission to do what we don't often – it's not that we don't – you know, particularly women want men to emote in that way but because of patriarchy and and it's sort of (laughs) the way that it fucks men up, there's no – there's not a lot of space for them to do that or they don't feel like there's a lot of space because they're still battling that shame monster. And I, for me, one of the things that I'm really interested in now, um, particularly because I have a three-year-old son, so it's probably a lot of where my focus is, is kind of like starting to go, is, is kind of exploring masculinity and those ways that, like how do we get... I'm, when you were telling that story, I was thinking about how does that little boy that that man was become the kind of man who's violently bashing his wife and it's it's wonderful that he's gotten to the point where he says you know I'm I'm going to take responsibility for this and I'm and I and I need to leave the house etc but like wouldn't it be amazing if we could just skip all of that horrible violence in the middle like so what can we do as a society it's very frustrating when you know I've got this reputation for this willful reputation that people have put on me for being this horrible man hater and Mm -hmm. in the past i've probably like provoked that a little bit you know but i genuinely feel like i'm invested in helping men to create healthy pathways to to being the kinds of men that they will be happy to be Mm -hmm. and you know, it's like you can't win. On the one hand, people hold up these tweets that you made, you know, these joke tweets that I made years ago, like kill all men because it's ridiculous because what you're answering to is the suggestion that feminists hate men and want them all to die. Like it's so dumb. Um, yeah. So they hold that up as evidence that you hate men and then you say, I'm creating a space for men to talk about their feelings and to talk about masculinity in a judgment-free zone in a way that we can all like hold space for them and love and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm invested in, in my son being a good man And those same men turn around and they're they're like, oh, you just got a bloody bunch of soy boys up on stage, you know. The the amount of, like, man-shaming, when I was promoting the event, when I was talking about the event, the amount of man-shaming that came from other men who were so threatened and scared by what it might mean for them to, like, open themselves up just makes me see that this problem is so, like, widespread. You know, how do we... Yeah, I guess I just keep going back to that image of the little boy. You know, how do we take little boys and deliver them safely into adulthood.
3: Well, and that's the thing is what's interesting. Um, so this therapist in the States, Terence Real, writes about this in a way that is really compelling. And, you know, his point is that basically we all get socialised into patriarchal thinking. We live in patriarchy. That's just what happens Girls kind of are able to be much more themselves up until about the age of 12 or 13 and a lot of teachers will say that's about the time when sort of all these girls who are really open and inventive and creative suddenly sort of shut down and they just become quite, can become almost sullen or not wanting to, you know, do martial arts anymore or not want to do like the things that might not make them attractive, especially to guys, you know, if we're just going to take a heteronormative approach at that age. Um... But for boys, that process starts a lot earlier and what Terence talks about is it's like around the age of three or four, he talks about well three to three, four, five, this process what he calls the normal traumatization of boys. and essentially it's the moment that a boy gets the message of what he's not supposed to be. So he's not supposed to be girly, he's not supposed to be soft, he's not supposed to hold hands with other boys, you know all those sorts of messages. And one, um, one story of this that really hit home to me was this guy who'd become a psychoanalyst um, largely because of this one moment in his life as a first grader. He and his class had been taught this beautiful um, lullaby um, which is about angels. And as a first grader, he had quite a lot of night terrors. So before he would go to sleep, he would sing that to himself every night and his angels were like his best friend's. And the first grade teacher um, asked him up to stand up at the end of the year and say and, and teach the class a song, right? That the, their favorite song. And he thought, I'm going to bring this song back. I'm going to teach them this song again. I, I love my angels. Started saying, "So my song is the song about the angels." And looked out to the class and just got this message from the other boys, and it wasn't malevolent. It was a mess- it was a look of shock. And combined with you can't do this, you cannot do this. And in that moment, he felt grateful. He was like, they've just told me what I need to know to stop myself from committing an error I will never come back from. And so in that moment, he pivoted immediately and said, I'm just kidding, that's not my favourite song. And then he taught the class The Marines Battle Hymn. And later he just said forever that was the first moment of betraying himself. And this is what Terence talks about is that boys from a really young age betray what they really want to be. And so when you get into that mode of betrayal and later they may betray their best friends because they feel like it's not safe to have, a lot of men don't have close friends that they feel like they can trust with all their secrets. So this process of self-betrayal goes on. And it's just like, how do you stop? How do you
2: intervene at that age, at like five? Yeah, and I think that we have a lot of uh, tools now, and there's a lot of discussion about how we make girls more resilient against the patriarchal system, and we're lagging behind when it comes to addressing that very issue. And you know, I was just thinking when you were saying that boys typically don't confide in other boys or other men because you know the shame factor and so who do they end up confiding in well if they partner with women they confide in her and she becomes the sole source of their emotional she becomes their emotional like dumping ground and then if she leaves what happens you know it's not you don't have to be violent to engage in like destructive emotional manipulation and I can fully understand how if the person that you've made the one that listens to you or you've you've this person has been the only one that you've opened up to, suddenly tells you one day that they're leaving and then you have no one to talk to. Of course that shame then projects itself as anger or even violence.
3: Unless you're brave enough to just take the shame in and go well, on and deal mean, with it. I mean, unless, <laughs> unless,
2: But then you would be a healthy person that maybe had dude's that you could talk to. Yeah, you know? possibly. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, it just it like it really breaks my heart when I think about um one of the stories that I told in so my book boys will be boys kind of goes from almost chronologically from before children are even born to then through kind of like the young years and the domestic space and then on and on and on. And one of the stories that I tell early on when I'm talking about gender and how we like fiercely society fiercely wants to gender children into two binary categories. But they are reflecting a state in society in which it's very important for people to categorise each other and it's very important for them to tell their communities that the child that I'm carrying has a penis or the child Mm. I'm carrying has a vagina and you will learn how to subconsciously react to my unborn child and talk about my unborn child and treat them before they're even born and that will continue when they're here in the world. And so one of the stories that I told was about this, um, it actually came from a, a Twitter thread that this face painter had written and... She talked about, um, she opened it by saying, I'm a face painter in, in America. No, sorry, sorry, she said, I'm a face painter, and I want to tell you about how male violence is born and created in America. And she talked about this, you know, just being at a festival, and this little boy, about four years old, coming up with his mother. And of course, dad was standing two meters away because dads can't come too close to the face paint because <laughs> that's for women and children, obviously. And it, I don't know what it might do to him. Um, can't be seen near the face paint. And the little boy said that he wanted to have a butterfly painted on his cheek and the mother, because of course women can be equally as forceful about, you know, perpetuating these ideals. The mother said, no, you can't have a butterfly on your cheek. That's for girls. And she turned to the father and she said, do you want your son having a butterfly on his cheek? And the father was like, no, I don't want that. And the face painter, you know, sort of made the astute observation that in this four-year-old boy, similarly to the psychoanalyst, that, the most senior figure, male figure in his life, the one that he admires the most and, and needs the most love and validation from, has said to him that his desires are wrong. And so the mother said to the face painter, paint something on him for boys, paint a skull and crossbones. And so she's sort of doing it and the boy looks miserable and she says to him, Do you, sort of whispers to him, do you want me to put a butterfly on your other cheek? And he says, yes, you know, he's really excited about it. And the mother sees, either sees her doing it or hears her asking that. And she said, no, I told you, not to do that, and I'm the mother. And she dragged the boy off, made a complaint about the face painter to her boss. And the face painter concluded this thread by saying, you know, I know that some people will say, well, what's the big deal? Like, why am I complaining about this? It's just face paint. And she said, yes, that that's the point. It's just face paint. And I don't want to live in a world where a little boy is shamed for loving something as simple and beautiful as a butterfly. Mm. And you kind of think about, like, People do say things like, oh, we'll just let kids be kids. But what they mean is let kids be categorised. Mm. Let kids be forced into these rigid binaries to make me feel more comfortable in my own skin because it yeah. threatens me to see a little boy wearing sparkly shoes or a skirt or whatever it and, might be. And they also, I think they sometimes
3: come from the point of view, I'm just trying to protect him. Yeah. And if he goes out with a butterfly on his face, he someone might attack him or he might be, his friends will make fun of him.
2: Yeah, but I also think that, I think that that's absolutely true. But I think that there are some people as well, you know, where the homes themselves are battlegrounds because they feel, the parents feel like having a son who's quote-unquote girly or, you know, flamboyant or camp or maybe gay mm. or, God, God forbid, trans, mm. that somehow that's like a reflection on them. Yeah, you yeah. know, So men think shamed. that if they've produced – a girly son, that that somehow emasculates them. And women feel like if they've produced a girly son for a man, then they've failed them somehow. Well, they can also come from that perspective of like,
3: I was trying to protect him and now I'm going to disown him.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's like, well,
3: who's doing the
2: damage right now? And then the other thing that, or the final thing that I think that is, the final thing that I think is really tragic about that is that all of these learned behaviours and fear of fear of just celebrating the love of your children no matter what, like their quirks and their interests and, and reinforcing to them that there's nothing wrong with what they like, you know, mm. provided it's not hurting anybody, mm. but that they they should be celebrated for loving what they love. Um, you know, there's no such thing as girls' clothes or boys' clothes. There's only clothes that children like mm. or that anyone likes. Is that the father then is deliberately distancing himself from having any kind of intimacy with his son that doesn't, fall into these like really rigid Mm. rigidly masculine categories so he'll go and bond with his son you know by playing baseball or going and watching football or you know later on drinking with him or whatever it might be but he can't bond with him by going and standing at the face painting counter with him because that's somehow that's not what dads do
3: Mm. that's why feminism is for men too so they can have face paint that's not clearly.
1: <laughs> how do community attitudes and law work together? How do we, you know, how do we shift our understandings to demand uh, to demand reform or to to demand the further resourcing of services? And I, I know you have opinions on this. Well, oh, I just just to say that I think sometimes we misconstrue
3: community sentiment, and politicians do this because actually law and order is easier. Um, so actually. Uh, what they've found, I think in Victoria particularly, like that actually things like justice-free investment or, you know, strategies that do actually um, engage with men who use violence or who assault, that that they are actually quite popular because they work and they actually reduce f- a future offending. And what people want to see is results, right? Now, with sex, child sex offenders, it is there is a particular community sentiment that can spin on a dial thanks to... Murdoch most of the time, um, but so I, I. But I think that I don't know. Community sentiment is not as as big a roadblock as the pol- political ideology that law and order is the vote winner. Because um, I actually think if you were able to sell it through the media in a way that's like this is actually helping and this is stop and this is in reforming behavior, community sentiment would shift. So it probably. If we were able to tell the Murdoch press to stop backing the law and order agenda to, without, you know, com- without actually looking at what that does and what that achieves, that would be a big part of changing community sentiment. <laughs> but
2: that's one of the biggest buddy hurdles, isn't it? Because I can imagine if, you know, if either you or I came out and said that in an article, say, or, or you know, you were, when you were on Q&A the other week, if you'd said something like that, then they would have just lined up behind you to say, "Feminist author Jess Hill wants pedophiles on the street." Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, yeah, exactly. it's 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 not just about community sentiment; it's about this willful muddying manipulation of, of community sentiment. Yeah, and and the people who, the real, I mean, I'm using this word deliberately, but the real victims of that are the people who continue to be forced into a state of survival. Um. I think that programs like that, uh, there was a program in Perth as well that was like a restorative justice program with, uh, in similar situations that did have reports of, you know, positive progress coming out of it. Um, but it's just, I think that the, one of the issues that we face as well is this sort of like desire for blood that people have. You know, they're really punitive. And I, and I really I appreciate that you mentioned how problematic it is that people wish rape on rapists because you know whenever I see that I always make a point of saying rape is never an appropriate punishment for anything no matter what someone has done because we cannot it's like the death penalty Mm -hmm. you know people love to kind of become the arbiters of whether or not someone is allowed to live or die but how can you possibly respond to a criminal act to a violent criminal act by saying we're going to do this very thing that we say is bad except when we do it it's not bad I love thinking about, oh, he's going to go into prison, better not drop the soap. You know, all of these rape jokes that people make because they love the idea that someone's going to be punished but all they're doing is creating more rapists. But they're saying, but this time we're on their side. But to um, give
3: you a sense like that it actually can change is that justice reinvestment, which is a strategy which says don't keep spending more money on prisons, spend money on rehabilitation, spend money on treating the problem that the person has, spend money on the entire system of treating perpetrators and victims. Um, where that was one of the first real serious trial sites of that was in Texas and it was actually Republicans who faced with having to... Re- like. Add thousands of prison beds decided to redirect that money to justice reinvestment and they actually closed a prison for the first time as a result of what justice reinvestment had achieved. So, you know, that Texas, which I think the slogan is don't mess with Texas, so like <laughs> um, the, the one place you would never expect to want to go away from the law and order route, it really is about like do you get some leaders to just go, we're going to do this. And we're not going to go the the easy route to get votes. We're going to go this other route, and it's going to work. And we know it's going to work because we've seen it work everywhere else. You know, I'm
1: I'm really struck by you know if you look around this room um, that we see an audience almost entirely of women, um, and that we're having this conversation uh, in in front of. Um, not, not necessarily the wrong audience, but I think that we there there is a there is a sentiment in this in in this discussion that men need to hear. Um, and so I feel like you know the space that something like Wollongong Writers Festival has created for us to talk about this is one that men need to be invited into um, and really encouraged and and it may be pu- punished if they don't come. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, so I, I just want to encourage people to um, to bring men in even more intimately on these conversations. And, and buy three copies of Jess's book and just give it to some dudes on the street. I'd like to thank Jess Hill and Clementine Ford. Thank you. And thank you, Gala. Gala Banting. Yeah.
2: Gala, Gala I said, I put the inflection on. Galavanting, who, again, big round of applause for stepping in at the last minute. Yeah. And did a, a seamless job. Dude.
0: If you'd like to hear more from the Wollongong Writers Festival, because trust me, there's some really amazing sessions yet to drop, or you just want to hear more from regional writing festivals, then head on over to our website, wwwrightsforwomencom forward slash rights for Festivals. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the Rights for Festivals podcast, or you can go and subscribe wherever you get your pods. Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts all those good places. Please do give us a rating and review because then we can spread the goodness and other people can find us too. Thank you so much for listening to the Rights for Festivals podcast and supporting regional writing festivals. This podcast episode was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world.